Hi, Bruce Johnson here, and welcome to the Wired to Grow show, where we help business owners and entrepreneurs become great at designing businesses that are created for maximum growth, impact, and profitability. And today's guest is going to be Aaron Gase. Aaron is an equity partner at the law firm of Shulman, Rogers, Gandel, Porty, and Eckert in uh, Potomac, Maryland, right outside Washington, D.C. And uh, if you're in the area, it's right at the corner of 270 and 495. Now, there are a lot of areas of law that uh, Aaron has been engaged in, primarily in the corporate transactional side, but the thing that he's a specialist at, the thing he's really great at is M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions. And he seemed like the perfect person to talk about how do you build a business that you can sell for millions. And so uh, we're going to welcome Aaron here. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Bruce. Love, love the show. Appreciate you having me on. Hey, we're really excited about it. Now, before we start digging into you know some of the technical stuff about how to build your business and get it ready to sell it for millions, why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you ended up deciding that you wanted to make you know mergers and acquisitions your thing? I just have a lot of fun with the back and forth, the negotiations. Uh, it's almost always a positive experience helping people to sell something that they've grown over the years, realize great value if you're on the sell side, if you're on the buy side. Helping companies grow their business through acquisitions is a great way to grow and uh, you know, just, just really enjoy every aspect of it. That's awesome. Now, a lot of people who uh, have a business, let, let's just pretend, um, let's say I'm 62 years old, I had a business, my kids don't want the business, and I'm thinking, I want to sell my business. Can you kind of give us an overview of what it's like kind of from the moment I decide I'd like to sell the business until you know, the transaction actually occurs? Sure, you know, ideally the, the, the person in question here had an eye to sale when they created the business and you know, they've had a, a plan to sell from the beginning and they've really built the business with the idea of optimizing the, the value of the business all along. But in your hypothetical, this person didn't do that right. and they just realized at age 62 that they're ready to sell. So now the question is how quickly, how can they, you know, how do they have time to wait to sort of get everything in line the right way? Or is it a fire sale and they have to rush to, to get a sale done really quickly? And, you know, a lot of facts come into play. But ideally, you want to give yourself a couple of years to really get everything in line, particularly if they haven't had an eye to the sale really from the beginning. There's a lot that you have to go through. And usually it starts with a discussion just on the financial side. So with financial advice and a financial advisor, and, and you're thinking about uh, things like, you know, how much money does the seller need to get out of the business on sale in order to make the sale worthwhile? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there are a slew of legal questions that need to get asked and answered pretty quickly as well, and that kind of kicks the process off. Okay, so you said typically it's a, what, two, three, four-year process? Yeah, I mean, uh, candidly, I've done deals in two months, but ideally you'd like to have a couple <laughs> of years. I've done, I've done deals in two weeks as well. Um, but you know, when, uh, when you get into the process, you start to realize that there's a lot more to the sale process than one might think. It's not at all like selling a car or even like selling a house. And uh, you know what selling a house is like, and right. even that process can take some weeks and months. But this is a business you've built you know, ideally over you know, 5, 10, or 15 or more years. There, there's a lot to go through, and if you want to realize really optimal, maximum value for your business, uh, there's some things you're going to have to to work through with your advisors. Okay, so if you're kind of pulling together the team, right? You said you talk about one is the financial person. Who are the other key players that someone would want to pull together early on? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, yours truly. I mean, you're going to need a lawyer for sure. 
and preferably somebody that's been doing this, uh, if not exclusively, almost exclusively for a long period of time, uh, you're also going to need a good accountant. Uh, and, uh, and then there are other things, depending on the type of business that you're in, you, you may meet specialists, special business advisors, uh, and, uh, you know, you have, for example, if you have a lot of employees, there may be some human resources issues that come up and advice that you'll need to, to get your deal structured the right way. But you definitely need a team of advisors. Okay. And uh, where does a deal guy fit into this whole picture, too? Sure, yeah. Well, I, I like to think of myself as the quarterback. Okay. And uh, I like to be involved as early as possible uh, because I've done this so many times. I, I know the issues that arise really from, from the legal and the business side. And, you know, you need somebody to step in and really lead you uh, through the process. The person should mm -hmm. be a trusted advisor, ideally somebody you've worked with before, but that's not always possible. But right. it's somebody that you're going you're, you're gonna to like, that you're going to trust, and who you know has the capability to, to really get the deal done the right way. Yeah. And... Uh when somebody, let's just pick the 62-year-old guys doing this, uh, when they're thinking about selling their business, right, whenever someone's selling something, they almost always think like the person selling the business, right? If you're trying to sell your legal service, right, you tend to think of like a lawyer. So right. what are some of the mistakes that business owners make as they're thinking about selling their business? Because they're only thinking about them. They're not thinking about the buyer side. Right, sure. Well, the one that I see all the time is the mistake I sort of alluded to two minutes ago, mm -hmm. which is, thinking that selling it's easy and it's going to be something they can complete very quickly mm -hmm. and so you know immediately there's stress and pressure and usually the bringer that sorry the buyer brings that same time pressure so inevitably there's inc incredible you know pressure from a time you know timing on the timing of the sale right and, and that creates you know puts you in a position where problems are made shortcuts are taken usually to the seller's detriment often the buyers driving that timing so I'd right. say that's that's definitely that's definitely one problem. I think another one is that uh, many money buyers don't realize that, or sorry, many sellers don't realize that the strain that the sale process puts on their people, mm -hmm. and, and there's a there's a bit of a catch twenty two there because in many ways the you know the business's most important asset is the people yeah, that, mm -hmm. that work there, and right. the seller's going to need those people around through the sale process and ideally through closing for reasons we can talk about. So, um, you know, retaining, motivating, incentivizing those employees to work through that process is something you can't lose sight of. Yeah. Are there certain things that business owners in general tend to think are really highly valuable that sellers don't? That business owners think are valuable and that sellers don't think are valuable. I mean, that the buyer doesn't think is valuable. valuable right, sorry. right, right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, look, as a general matter, sellers tend to overvalue their business, and that's always going to be a, a key part of the negotiation with a seller is what is the value of the business. Mm -hmm. And so often, particularly when you're in a, in a down or sort of flat M&A market, as, you know, as we're in now, um, the, uh, the inability to come to a, a clear agreement on value doesn't have to be fatal. It's usually solved through an earnout. Mm -hmm. Which which is used, uh, you know, sometimes to the party's detriment, um, to uh, sort of bridge the gap between the buyer's expectation of price and the seller's. Right. Um, and so, you know, I've I've actually written a blog, uh, several blog posts recently about earnouts. It can be a very complicated and, and sometimes litigious area, but it is often the best way to get a deal done when when the parties are at loggerheads about value. Yeah, in fact, I should mention that if people go to gettingdealsdone.net gettingdealsdone.net, uh, you can read those blog posts. And so since you brought up the subject of earnouts, uh, what are the major categories or types 
of transactions, earnouts being one of them. What are the other options? Sure. We, uh, you know, earnout would be a component uh, of, of a deal structure, mm -hmm. and it can be used in either an asset sale or a stock sale. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, you know, th those are the main, two main categories. In, a, in an asset sale, your 62-year-old seller it retains control over the company, the sort of the legal entity, mm -hmm. but the legal entity sells the assets to the buyer. In mm -hmm. a stock sale, the buyer, I'm sorry, the seller is actually selling his equity or his stock in the company, in the target company. Right. So at the end of the deal, he doesn't own that company anymore. And you know, how do you choose one over the other? The answer is there are a lot of considerations, but most of the important ones are tax considerations. What's the mm -hmm. best deal? From a tax standpoint, for the seller or the buyer, and you know which 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 one are we going to go? Sometimes an approach that's better for the for the buyer isn't as good for the seller, so that right. gets reflected in the amount of the purchase price. So, for those who don't know the lingo, what is an earnout? Sure, yeah, an earnout is an agreement uh, in the contract, the sale contract, that gives the um, ability. Uh, to the to the seller to basically earn a portion of the purchase price after the sale is closed. So, like, mm -hmm. I want to sell for my business for ten million. You're only willing to buy it for seven million. So, we'll agree that you'll pay me seven million dollars at closing, and then I'll continue to work the business uh, uh, for three years after the sale. And if the business hits certain financial or non-financial benchmarks after the closing, then get another three million in, in the consideration. Now are earnouts usually driven by the buyer who wants the you know previous owner to stay engaged or is it primarily the the seller as you just mentioned who wants to hit a certain target? Yeah you know it's it's almost always the buyer I mean the seller would rather have the full 10 million in that's my what example I'm, that's what I'm assuming. You know, up front. <laughs> But on the other hand, if it's you know earnout or no deal, then the seller is happy to go in you know into an earnout arrangement just to get the deal done, understanding right. that the seller's taking some risk there. If if the milestones aren't hit, if the business doesn't perform after the closing in the same way that it did before the closing, and the business doesn't hit some of those milestones or expectations that the buyer had, then you know hey the seller may only end up with that seven million I talked about and see nothing more. Right. So if I'm trying to sell my business and the only way the buyer will buy it is if I'm engaged in an earnout, what are some of the things that as an owner I need to be thinking about or be worried about as potential problems? Sure. Well, you're you're the owner of the business being sold. Right. In your example and uh, I'm still 62. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, still 62. You get any younger the last 5 minutes? Uh Okay, so you know you're worried. You know you're really worried that your management team may not be able to uh, do the same things under new ownership that it did under the seller's owner. You know ownership mm -hmm. and leadership. So you know sometimes the seller is given a role in the business after the sale, maybe through an employment agreement for two or three years, and that can be a good and a bad thing, like so many other mm -hmm. attributes of these of these deals. But um, if if the let's say I'm the seller. And I'm leaving the business. The buyer says, "I don't want you near this thing. Get out of here." Then the only way I'm going to really see that earnout payment, not the only way those milestones are going to be met, is if the team that I built, that knows the business, that knows the customers, that you know knows right. how to get the right margins, that, that they're going to be around post closing, 
and able to, to run this business the right way, which in turn puts a, you know, a huge uh, onus on me as I build the business and I look to grow the value of the company before the sale to make sure that management team is in place. And that's really a critical point. Yeah, excellent. Now, I know uh, the question that a lot of owners have is, you know, I want to get the optimal amount of money. I want to get the maximum amount of money for my company. And when you talk about this, you talk about value drivers, right? So what do you mean by value drivers? And then we can start, you know, picking apart some of those. Sure. Yeah, I do. Value drivers, great term. Uh, I didn't invent it, but I definitely use it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really their attributes, financial or legal attributes of, of the business that really add value to the overall, uh, that, that, that increase the value of the business over time. And the more value drivers you can build into the business, you know, year over year, the, the more you're going to get for your company when, when you go to sell it. Okay, now you've done a lot of transactions. So if you had to pick out, let's just let's start with uh, you know the top four, five, or six of them. Okay, so if you had to pick out your favorite one, what would be the primary driver that you think really increases the multiple? Well, I've got, I guess I've got a few favorite ones. You know, certainly, uh, <laughs> my wife hates it when I say that. You know, just yeah, pick yeah, one. I, I, I hate superlatives. <laughs> well, you always go to five. So let me see if I can okay. get at least three good ones. There you go. The table. Yes. Yeah, so, in a good day, I might get seven in, but that's okay. Seven. Yeah, yeah. We'll be here for a long time if I'm going through seven. But, okay. but let me hit a few. Let me hit a few. Certainly, one is is uh, you know putting in uh, an incentive compensation plan in place to. Um, to incentivize, uh, retain, and reward your employees for growing the business, for staying with you through the sale, uh, and for accomplishing whatever objectives you have in front of them. And those those take a number of different forms. Sometimes they're they'll uh, be long-term plans that reward your employees with with equity, uh, you know, stock or whatever mm-hmm. you have that that uh, so it gives them a share in the upside of the business. And and some of the some plans are more short term and maybe just in the form of cash bonuses. But right. whatever the plan, the, the the key is to give the uh, to give your key people a, a feeling of ownership, a, an ownership stake in the business, a share in the success and the upside of the business. That's always the objective there. Okay, well that raises an interesting question uh, for me. You know, the last probably decade or so, it seems like everyone's favorite form of incorporation is an LLC. Um, is that fair? That's true. Yeah, that, okay. that's more and more. We we usually when we're asked to create a new entity, we almost always start with the LLC, and sometimes there are reasons to move to other entities like a corporation. Right. But oftentimes, for tax and other reasons, an LLC is 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 the best uh, choice of entity. Yep. Okay. So when you're talking about here about incentivizing and giving stock, so would one of the issues be early on in this process that you might have to transition your form of Corporate to be actually a sub S or C corp. Yeah, and I'm using the the term stock very loosely, so I okay. think equity is probably the the better term. And you just you can create almost any of the plans that you created with a corporation. You can mimic or or or, or uh, create use in in an LLC with maybe some some variation. Now, having said that, it is true that some venture investors, in, in particular, that are used to working with corporations. Uh-huh. Uh, will insist that an entity convert from an LLC to a corporation prior to, let's say, a venture investment. But when it comes time to sell the company, usually there's no need to do to make that conversion at that point. Okay. Um, so, you know, LLC is fine. 
So you can do the same kind or restructure something similar in an LLC without having to do the stock deal that you would did in a sub S or C. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things you can't really do in an LLC is an option plan in the traditional uh -huh. way that we're done with it corporations in the internet boom, for example, in the late 90s. But I think a lot of people learned that those stock option plans weren't really worth the paper <laughs> they, were, they were printed on. So, you know, you know, the, I have the, a lot of friends who have options that were worth zero, yes. Oh, yeah, people frame them, they put them in their you know, tool shed and everything else and laugh at them every time or cry when they walk by and cry. Case may be, yeah. Yeah, so you know, we, there, there's a, there are a menu of plans and there's a lot of, you know, there's analysis that goes into selecting the right plan for the, for the company and the people that you're talking about, whether it's cash or equity uh, or some hybrid, uh, we, we've seen definitely, I've been recommending recently for a lot of my clients that they use what are called share appreciation rights plans, uh, SAR plans and for short, sometimes referred to as phantom equity plans, which are really uh, great in, in, in several respects. One of them is that they reward uh, your employees with the equivalent cash upside they get if they actually owned equity in the company, okay. but they don't get actual equity. They get it's you know referred to as phantom equity. Right. The, the beauty of that is you know it, it gives them the cash upside without creating for you some of the burdens that come along with having a whole slew of new equity owners in your business where right. you know those those equity owners may have you know, legal rights to, for example, see your books and records that you'd prefer to keep private. Right. You, know, they, you may owe them, to use a fancy legal term, fiduciary duties um, that you, you know, wouldn't owe them if you set up a phantom equity plan. And frankly, from a tax standpoint, um, it, it can be beneficial. They, this, the, the SAR, phantom equity plan, mm -hmm. typically would pay out a cash payment upon some big event. It might be, for example, upon the sale of the company. And it is taxed as ordinary income, so at the higher rate mm -hmm. for the recipient, which you know maybe you're frowning upon initially, right. but then you realize that's okay because the person doesn't have to pay the tax until they have the cash in hand. Whereas with some of the option plans, particularly if they weren't set up the right way, some, some of those recipients had to pay cash on the grant before they ever saw right. any cash. So it's, uh, anyway, that, that's, that's one approach that uh, uh, can be a good one. And would this SAR approach then be what you'd talk about in an LLC then? Sure. You can use SARS right. with an LLC just as you can with a corporation. You know, with an LLC, there's also something uh, called profits interest, which is, uh, is an equity interest in the company, uh, but oftentimes it comes without the, some of the management and voting rights that a normal member would have. And it basically gives the recipient the upside, so to the extent that the business grows in value between the date of grant and the date of sale, that person gets that upside. So in other words, mm -hmm. you and I have been building you know, a business for, for five years. We've created a lot of value. We bring in Joe and, and, and you know, we don't want to, Joe is insisting on equity, so right. we want to give him some equity, but we don't want to give him the benefit of the value we've created. We only want to give him the benefit of what he helps us to create going Correct. forward. And that's where that profits interest can be a very good way to go. Very yeah. interesting. Now, for a typical business owner who's thinking about creating some kind of incentive structure for his management team, or her management team, sorry, uh, are there some pretty common glaring mistakes that people make that you wish that they wouldn't make? Um, you know, if you if you set it up with a with the help of a lawyer and and you know when necessary maybe some financial advice. Um, 
you know, I don't see it. To, to be candid, a lot of mistakes made there. I think the bigger mistake is not putting one a plan in place early enough. Um, and, and then certainly, you know, once you set up the plan, it's incumbent upon the the business owner to make sure it's administered properly with mm-hmm. with help. So if you, if you put it on the shelf and don't use it, or you use it, you know, uh, in a lazy fashion, it's it's you've wasted money, and you may be creating problems for yourself, you know, go, going forward. But uh, you know, I think. Yeah, now you said early enough. So, in general, when when should someone begin thinking about that process of putting it in place before the transaction? Sure. Well, as you and I know, most businesses start with one person who thinks right. uh, he or she is uh, you know impossible to replace and you know key to the business. But it's you know hopefully sooner rather than later, the business owner realizes that. This business is going to be worth more if it can run itself without me. So then it's exactly the mindset has to be how can I make myself how can I make this business run without me? So you know, and, and the answer's got to be getting the right people around me. So now you start looking around and hiring key executives. So I'd start putting a plan in place as soon as you get some key people in the business that you really want to stick around. You're going to invest time in them. You know, there'll be a lot. You know, your future financial goals may be riding on their back. So you want to make sure they feel that they've got some skin in the game. They get upside and, and downside, and that's where a plan like this can can really uh, be be helpful. Okay, so in that case, you're talking about uh, you know I want to sell. I already know that I want to sell. I'm bringing talent in. I'm trying to give them some incentive, moving them toward a sale. Uh, what about the person who? Let's go back to our 62 year old, who that was never part of his plan. He's had the company for 30 some odd years. And he's thinking about selling. Is this something you know, two years ahead of time, twelve months ahead of time? What kind of time frame? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But by all means, it's not too late at that point. And and I have right. a client just just like that. And he set up a business as a cash cow IT consulting. Uh, you know, he and his wife go to work about you know three hours a month. And they <laughs> hey, and I want that job. <laughs> they make a ton of money. But you know, I don't know what it was. But the guy's in his mid sixties, surprisingly, and. He said, uh, for some reason, he, he rolled over, you know, in bed, I guess, one day, and said to his wife, "It's time we grow this business and sell it, you know, and 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 let's mm-hmm. let's you know let's put some money in our in our kids' accounts, and you know, right. when we pass, they'll get the benefit of what we grew, because and and he knew there was potential there. So then he came to me to talk about what you know to talk about things he can do to um, kind of get him from here to the sale, and this was really the first thing we talked about. So yeah. um, you know the, he's looking for a sale in in, in two to four years. Um, he has a great staff, maybe overpaid, um, but uh, you know really skillful, uh, strong staff. And and so how do we get them incentivized? And they're so they're I said they're overpaid. They're sort of content too. I mean they're very professional right. and smart. But what incentive do they have to do, go that extra mile to grow the business? Well, that's why we put a, a, a SAR plan in place to help him uh, accomplish that. Excellent, excellent. Now, you already hinted at another one of your value drivers, uh, right, which is about the business owner removing himself or herself out of the primary running of the business, right? Correct, yep. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the more more dependent a business is on a single person, the less money a buyer is going to want to pay for it because... If um, if the business can't run without you, why would a buyer pay pay you exactly. any money for it if you're ultimately going to be gone? So, um, you know that that's 
that's a key point. And and so um, and we talked about the earnout too, mm-hmm. right? Is right. if there is an earnout, not all deals have them. Certainly, not all deals should have them. But if there, a portion of the purchase price is going to be earned after the sale, and you're not going to be around to run the business, then you're not going to see the full value of your business unless there are people there that can run it. And remember, the buyer isn't going to have any incentive to help you earn your earnout. It's got to right. be the business, and uh, that's where your team comes into play. So you know when you think about when you think about replacing yourself, you know the the, the, the natural. I mean, the, the the keys are selecting the right people. Uh, incentivizing them, and then also putting in place an, a succession plan where you know over time the your your key people are assuming more and more responsibility, and you're taking on less and less. And you know I think a lot I've seen a lot of business owners actually enjoy that process because it means they don't have to be the ones fielding the calls and hitting all the deadlines. They get to be you know strategic thinkers. The twenty thousand feet foot, you know, mm-hmm. view. view and yeah. what you know, going out and meeting with customers, and it, it's probably a lot more fun to to do that to, to to run that side of the business, I guess. So, kind of going back to one of the mistakes, my guess is that some might think that, hey, if I want to get the maximum value, I really need to drive this thing as hard as I can, so that we're hitting certain, you know, uh, revenue numbers or you know, EBITDA numbers. But the reality is, that's actually not beneficial for them. Right, they they really need to see the management team really hit and drive that, and for themselves to pull back. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great that's a great point, Bruce. Yeah, and I think the strategic thinking is critical when you know you've got a sale that's a couple of years out. So you know if you're just driving, driving, driving profits all the time, mm-hmm. and you know you're taking your eye off the the ball, the bigger picture. Um, it, you know you're gonna you know it's gonna be it may be a fruitless endeavor at that point but you know it's also a good time for that founder to get with his the advisory team that we talked about and make sure that everybody really is uh, you know moving in the same direction and that you know the the business as a whole is doing the right things you know one of the things I've been thinking as you've been talking is uh, some people don't mind sharing other people hate sharing right and when you're in doing uh, the process of going through the transaction do you find that uh, a lot of business owners wrestle with, I've got to give away some of the stuff that I thought was mine, or do you find that they're, it's easier for them to be generous at this point because they realize there's going to be a big payday? Does, oh, you mean does greed term- take over is the question I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, does greed take over? Some, sometimes it does, um, and, and uh, you know, sometimes it does, but um, you know, you, you, you maybe get what you deserve on that count. If, uh-huh. if going to be greedy, that may have the effect of limiting your ability to get top dollar for your business when, when it comes time to sell. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I think uh, that's where a good advisor can also come in to help, help uh, you know, coax or counsel the, uh, the seller to take, to do things a certain way rather than another way. And, uh, and again, having that team around you early uh, early as you grow the business and, and start to look to to a sale is is key because uh, the the more they know about you, your strengths and weaknesses, the more help they can they can be to you. Maybe in a way that say you know your your CFO or your vice president may not be able to help be helpful in that way, and you know the owner may not be listening to his or her spouse. We we know how that goes. Sometimes they <laughs> listen, sometimes they don't. The the the, the sixty mid guy that I mentioned to you in, in his mid sixties looking yeah. to sell. 
uh, interesting you raise this, but his wife was um, very much involved in the business, and uh, boy, you should hear the back and forth uh, mm -hmm. between them. And she's got an accounting background; he's an IT guy, and <laughs> so you know they have some interesting discussions. And then also, when Harry we, met Sally, is what that is. Uh, yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Very fun. Um, okay, so uh, so the first one is about incentivizing your team. Right, and the second one is about removing you from really the day-to-day -day operations. Now, right. by the way, as people are removing themselves from the day-to-day -day operations, do you find that a number of uh, business owners actually have to go through and change up their management team in this process to be able to really build the kind of team they want? Like, they've held on to you know Joe or Sally for ten years, but they're not the person that can take it forward. Yeah, unfortunately, that is sometimes the case, and where you okay. often see that is where. There's a, a, a small family-run business that has become a sort of hit critical mass, and they can't go mm -hmm. any further without some investment dollars. So now they look outside to investors, say a venture capital investor, okay. or more likely a private equity investor that wants to come in, really build the company, maybe have a, not a controlling stake, a meaningful say in the company. And they start looking around, they start seeing that if we're going to really go to that next level, that you know we're going to need to make some critical changes in this management team, and that's a that's a painful transition uh, for any any owner, uh, you know, with the personal relationships and trust that get right. built. Um, and but now you've got an outsider saying, look, we came in for a lot of money, and uh, you know we need to take this to the next level because exactly. we're looking to sell, and that's why we're in this, and right. that's where we go through that that painful process of maybe replacing some of the people, the family friends, the family members that are in this business that really just can't take it say you know they were great when it was a small you know regional mm -hmm. um, you know company and but now you're looking to make it a national company or maybe even to you know go to the public markets for equity right and, you know the, the kind of CFO for example that can do the job uh, and, and answer to public shareholders is definitely not that the same CFO that can uh, that, that's run the right. business really from the start uh, you know in, in the private uh, in the private market. Yeah, and I know from my consulting uh, and coaching practice, uh, one of the things that usually comes up early on when anyone is plateaued, they're not growing as fast, is there's, there's almost always one or two people at that top level who the owner knows they need to let go of, but they haven't been willing to let go of. And they just need that outside person to come in and say, why are you tolerating this, right? And uh, so I, I would guess that probably 80, 90% yeah. of my clients, that, that happens within the first couple months. Yeah, every, everyone hangs on to people they shouldn't be hanging on to. <laughs> well, what, what do you say, Bruce? You know, you, you know that's one of the, the keys to you know being a good leader and, and successfully growing your business. You have to have good people around you, right? And it's exactly. you either have A players or you have, uh, and maybe you, most, most of your team should be A players, and then if you've got B players, you keep them only if they're going to become A players. Exactly. Yep. You so listen so well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those are the first two. Okay. Give me a third value driver. Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I guess I probably could probably hit two more if you got time. I, yeah. So yeah. One would be the contracts uh, that, that you enter into. And this is more important for some businesses than others. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I represent uh, a company that's uh, in the business of uh, buying and selling commodities. Okay. And without getting into too much detail, they love to buy supply contracts that have a 10-year uh, runway on them, a 10-year okay. term. And if they, if they can find uh, a 10-year supply contract, they'll pay three times 
the uh, earnings value on that on that on that deal. Okay. Uh, if it's less than ten years, they don't. So they're they're always looking to go out and buy these contracts. Mm -hmm. And um, so we'll we'll look at hundreds and hundreds of contracts, and you know the the ones that uh, earn top do dollar are the ones that have a couple of key key attributes. The one I mentioned that the, the duration. Mm -hmm. uh, Two, that it's not that it's not subject to termination by the other party. Let's say on thirty or sixty days' notice, right? Maybe there's a termination clause that says if the performance is bad, it can be terminated sort of for cause. But otherwise, but not because the company was sold. You got it. Right. You got it. Yeah. And then a third thing is that you know if you're looking to sell a business and you've got a lot of contracts, and that's an important part of the company's value, mm -hmm. often. You know the deal. Uh, the sale will be if the sale is a sale of assets to to a mm -hmm. buyer. You, the, as the seller, in effect, are going to be assigning or transferring those contracts to the buyer. Right. And here's here's the catch. If there's a clause in the contract that says that the contract cannot be assigned without the consent of the counterparty of that contract, mm -hmm. that means then you've got to go to each of the counterparties get their written consent. Um, and you know. That's There's a major problem, and you're asking for extortion. You know, you're going to get worked on at least some of those. The third party said, "Well, you know, I'm happy to transfer it, but you know, I'm exactly. going to want a little more money over here." So, exactly. I want a know, better I, price. Yeah, exactly. Better, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're in business too. So, uh, yeah, I think it, in terms of you just it, the goal is to kind of enter contracts or think in terms of entering contracts that put you in the position to lock up value. If you think of it sort of as a container in that container, mm -hmm. and where the you try to minimize the amount of value that leaks out, so when it comes time to sell, you know you'll get you'll get you optimize the value of those contracts. Okay, so in this case here, the value to the owner is that when they're writing their contracts or they're you know re-upping a contract, they need to incorporate a clause that blank. Yeah, you want to you want to make sure that the uh, that the, the contract allows for the continuity of the right. of the arrangement over time, and there's you know several examples of ways you go about that. The ones I mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. limiting the termination rights, um, you know, uh, permitting assignment. Uh, you know, those are just some of the ways that uh, some of the ways that we try to do that. Right. So if people just caught that, that was a million dollar idea right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, because yeah. if if they, it, it, if they if they have to be uh, if someone else has to agree to the assignment, either a you're going to lose some contracts, or b people are going to try to get some more money out of you because they know that you need this done, right? And you're going to get a smaller multiple if they can be assigned. So at every it. level, that's just a bad thing to not have continuity built in. Yeah, and I'll give you another little practical uh, tip on this, which is. It, particularly if your com company thrives or is, is based upon having a large number of contracts, make sure that you're keeping track of your contracts. And it, mm -hmm. it sounds like a common sense piece of advice, but I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've you know, represented sellers that didn't have a good collection of their contracts, that you know, didn't, didn't have signature pages all you know, executed and dated. Um, if there were amendments, you know, where are those? They're incomplete. You got and now in this day and age with you know, the ability to scan and store things electronically, it's easier than ever. Critical part of the, um, growing the business for value. It's a value driver because, as I mentioned, when you get into the sale process, I mentioned the timing pressures. Right. It's going to be critical that you be able to move quickly 
and efficiently. If you can't move efficiently, your 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 own professional fees are going to be driven higher. You're gonna if there, to the extent your advisors have to go back and recreate things. Exactly. That be, creates delay, but expense for you as well. And when you're dealing with an anxious buyer who maybe has alternatives, if they don't feel they can get a deal done with you quickly, they're worried about their own fees being driven up. And if they've got an alternative, right. they may well go to that alternative. So these things come into play. So when when all of a sudden you're you, under this intense pressure to sell, and the buyer says, "Great, uh, your your business is a is a one that." Uh, where a lot of the value is contained in your contracts, and we know you've got 500 contracts. We'd like to see a list of those. We'd like to understand uh, um, wh uh, which of those contracts require that you go to thir a third party to get their consent to, to assign them. Right. And um, you know, we, we'd like you to actually give us copies of all of them because we'd like to go through them ourselves. If you're not able to respond to that request pretty quickly, you you your uh, the, the sale may be in jeopardy uh, quick quicker than you you know than you, than you'd like to believe. And it's easy to believe that someone who's a business owner who tends probably to be a much more big picture person who wants to go out and you know do deals and do marketing and sales. The last thing they're thinking about is checking and making sure all the documentation is right. Oh yeah, gosh, you know we we're, we're sympathetic, right, Bruce? I mean you're yeah. you're you start a business, you just have so much to take care of. And if you're not just inclined naturally to be a good organizer, exactly. that's something that you just throw stuff in a drawer and figure you can take care of it later. But, but you, you got to really pay attention to that stuff early, or, or hire somebody that can pay attention to it early yeah. on. Okay, so in this contract section, uh, the first one you talked about really is the continuity agreement. Um, but there are other contract issues, I'm assuming, related to uh, intellectual property, for example. Are there some of those things that you need to make sure you're taking care of and nailing down early on if you want to get a bit or multiple? Oh, by all means. Yeah, I think intellectual property is a huge topic and you know probably worthy of, a, of, of its own discussion. But yeah. you know, for many businesses these days, the intellectual property is, is really where the value of the company is. And when you think of intellectual property, it's not just the, you know, the patents or the trademarks or maybe copyrights that we all think of. The, you know, those things can be registered with the PTO mm -hmm. to help protect them. But it's it's um, as much as that. It's it's often just the trade secrets and and methods and, and approaches to business that that your company takes. Maybe it's registrable, maybe it's not, but maybe that's also a little bit irrelevant because the truth is so often um, intellectual property is 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 lost uh, to insiders, people in your company. Right. Who who go out and, and and take take what you've developed or take what they developed for you and they go and use that to create a competing business and uh, you know, so that's where you know shame on you if early on in in, in building your business and if it's a, tech, a technology based business in particular that you don't have agreements you've got to have agreements in place with your people that that do a number of things right we call them restriction agreements or restrictive right. covenant agreements again. Fancy legal words. What what do they mean? We so what they do a bunch of things. One would be they require the your employees to assign intellectual property that they develop on your watch on your mm -hmm. in your as part of their employee that they assign those to the to the business. Um, another is that the uh, the, the non disclosure portion of that agreement would require uh, or prohibit your employees from disclosing trade secrets that are particular to your business. To anybody outside the business, and then of course you get into 
the um, the, the much discussed uh, non non competition agreement, right, and non solicitation agreement. Again, fancy words basically mean Bruce, you work for me. You can't leave for you know while you're working here, and say for a year or two after you leave, you can't compete with me. You can't come back and and poach my my customers, and you can't come back and poach my employees. So this prevents you from taking you know, your experience with me and going down the street and starting a, a competing business. Now, in general, how strong are those NDA kind of agreements? Yeah, well, great, great question. I mean, their whole seminar is given on that very question. And, and, uh, and you and, have 30 seconds, just kidding. Yeah, and I got 30 seconds. So <laughs> the answer is it depends on, on, on the state and the judge reviewing it. Um, but if they're narrowly and thoughtfully drafted, then they are often uh, enforceable in most states. There's some notable exceptions like California, but uh, in most states they, they will be enforceable. They, the, usually though, the, the, um, it, this is maybe arguable to a degree, but they, they have a, uh, they, they create, um, a, you know, even if they're not enforceable in court, Somebody that's subject to a non-compete is probably going to be hesitant to breach it. So right. that's that's the important point. You get yeah. it in place, whether you got to spend money later on to take the person to court and so forth. You can deal with that when the time comes. But the average person would probably perceive uh, this is something I shouldn't engage in because I signed that agreement, right? You got it. So you you figure it it may not always be enforceable, but for the majority of people. It's a fair enough that they won't do something for those twelve or twenty-four months. That's it. And and just the last point I'd leave with you on this on the restriction agreements is the agreement you might use for your top, you know, two or three executives is probably different from the one you'd use for your mid-tier managers or employees, right. which is in turn different from the one you'd use for, you know, maybe your lower level employees, where all you really want from them is that they preserve the confidentiality of anything that they hear it, while they answer the phone or while they're filing papers. But right. obviously when you're dealing with more senior people, there it's a much more serious uh, set of considerations at that level. Now, are customer uh, lists also considered intellectual property or not? Sure, I mean it's uh, you know maybe not intellectual property, but it's certainly confidential information that you wouldn't want. It, you know maybe it's it's a more it better characterized as a trade secret okay. uh, or, or something that's you know particular to your business that and you need to protect it regardless of what you call it. So yeah, we definitely want to look out for customer lists, especially for some businesses, but I mean, that's, there's a lot of value in the customer list. Okay. So those would be a couple of key kinds of contracts that you want to nail down before you move forward, right? By all means. Early yep. on. Uh, yep. you, had, you said you have another value driver, and I'm not limited by time right now, so if, if you have a fifth one, we can get there too. So Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, no, no, yeah. Well, Give me your fourth value driver. Well, yeah, I guess, I t are we up to four already? Okay, yeah. gosh. I said I was going to do three, so this is uh, hey, this we're, is we're flying, baby. We're on, we're on a roll, man. We're on a roll. Uh, so yeah, I guess the the last thing, uh, um, last one I'd mention is just how important it is to integrate your estate and tax planning into your overall business plan. And mm -hmm. and the reason for that is that as you grow your business, it's it's for most people going to be the case that, that your business is the most valuable asset in your overall estate. Right. And so um, you know, you you start with that notion, and then you then you realize how much tax exposure you have uh, when it comes to estate taxes. So this is about you know what happens after you die. Now you know, it, it, of course, th this is a general comment, and maybe doesn't go directly to uh, the buying and selling discussion, uh -huh. but it can in some circumstances. But the the key here is you know that 
you know, the, the the bad news is that you could be you know you you know you pass away and and the value of your business you know whether it's the sales proceeds or the business itself um, you, you might be you know, might maybe subject to an estate tax of over fifty percent depending on what state you live in. Right. The good news is that most estate taxes can be um, can be avoided through proper planning, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the creation of trust or the retitling of assets, planning goes a long way. So as you start as you build your business and you start to think about the financial end and your your you know your own personal financial needs, the estate planning and of course the financial uh, planning is, is, is just critical. I don't want to leave that out either. Right. I mentioned a financial advisor is a really important part of your right. deal team. And you know, one of the things you'll be you'll need to discuss is what is the what is the right price for you? And in other words, how, what's the minimum you need to get out of this sale of mm -hmm. your business in order to do the things you want to do? If you right. can't hit that minimum, then it may not be probably is not time to sell. And um, and so that that's a discussion you have with your financial advisor, and then the question becomes: Well, what what buyers are you know are you going to be able to get that price? And that brings in another key key member of your of your advisory team, which is going right. to be your business broker, and that's going mm -hmm. to be the person that's going to help you prepare maybe from the business side, not the legal side, but more the business side. Prepare the business for sale. You know. Go into the market and see what buyers are interested, you know, in, in paying. Are they interested in your company? And if so, at, at what price? Mm -hmm. And so you start to bring those considerations together. And at that point, you, you know, you ought to have your estate and tax planning, uh, you know, lined up and, and um, you know, in place. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that I know uh, I've heard you talk about is that uh, when it comes to the stock part of the sale, that people, uh, don't track who owns what well. Is that another common problem that you find? Yeah, I guess we're going into number five. Let's do it. Yeah, let's go for it. Tip number five. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is uh. <laughs> oh boy. This is a this is a good one, Bruce. I'm glad you raised it. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen clients accidentally give away equity in their business. Mm -hmm. And you know when you're just starting out with your business and you're desperate for money. You'll say all sorts of things, and uh, <laughs> you know, and you know, for example, you know, I, I actually uh, had a conversation today with a client. And the client, great little business. They, you know, the classic, you know, scientists getting together with a business owner, uh -huh. a business guy, right? right? And and the scientist has a, a provisional patent on a process. It's not quite alchemy. He he can't turn. Uh, lead into gold yet, but it's something sort of close to that. And uh, it, you know, hey, people are okay with water into wine too. So water into wine, I love so, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's not that either. But you okay. know, it's, again, something sort of close. So you know, they um, the, the scientist is brilliant. The the business guy is is very uh, you know very good. But mm -hmm. um, neither of them has or wants to put money into this. Business or don't you know at least in in, in right. the amounts that are necessary to get it going. So they need some they need some initial startup cash. So sure enough, I was on the phone today and you know I've talked to these guys a bunch of times. But you know, one of the business guys says to me, Aaron, uh, you know we we did you know Chuck uh, lent us ten thousand dollars and you know I told him uh, you know if we puts in another ninety you know, get him up to a hundred we you know give him you know the right to a a one percent of of our company. 
you know, immediately alarms start going off on my right. in my head. So you know, hey, did did you did you put this in writing to Chuck or was it just verbal? Well, it's just verbal. It's no big deal. It's probably not binding. I'm oh, I may have mentioned it in an email. Okay, time out. <laughs> because look, look, I understand you need the cash, and that's great. Chuck was there for you, uh, and and he's not holding your feet to the fire. But if this is really er everything you say it is, the technology, and if this and, and, and believe me, they're talking to a big private equity fund now. This idea's got legs. Uh, Chuck's going to come back to you a year and a half from now when your business is worth $5 million and say, look, here's the email you said I could, for $100,000, get 1% of the company. That's going to be a great deal for Chuck, and you're going to have a hard time saying you never really made that offer or it's, it's not binding anymore. And the fact that it's verbal uh, doesn't, mean, doesn't give you an automatic out. So a verbal commitment to give away equity can be binding. Yeah. So the, the takeaway is, be A, just be really stingy with the equity. Don't give it away if you don't ha absolutely have to. We talked about phantom equity plans with the yeah. SAR plans. Yeah, that's an example yeah. of how not to give equity away, but still to give some value to people that are helping you get from A to B. Um, you know, the, the, the second thing is if you've got to give equity away, make sure you, that you work with your advisors, that you, that you have proper contracts that is reflected in the records of the company, right? Because the biggest fear that a, an investor or a subsequent buyer of the company is going to have is that uh, you know, they paid, for example, you know, X million dollars for your company and thought they were getting 100% of the equity, and then Chuck shows up waving his email, and now he gets 1% of a business that, you know, for $100,000, this is, this is really a problem at that point. And, and likewise... Although he did get a $10 million valuation for a new company, which isn't bad either. Yeah. Wait, wait, okay. There you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was right. thinking the other way. I was thinking they haven't gotten something produced, and they already have a you know ten million dollar buy. That's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's true. Yeah. Maybe my numbers weren't. Yeah. So if it's ten million, maybe it's twenty. But yeah. 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 yeah I, I hear you. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good valuation. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, well, you know, and then then the guys are discussing how valuable is the patent that's going into right. this company, and uh, because remember I mentioned the business guys really not putting in any cash, but the right. That the scientists putting in the patent. So of course the business guy would like that patent to be worth about five dollars and twenty five cents because without <laughs> the, without the money that the business guy is bringing to the table, the the patent can't be commercialized. So it has no value. Yeah. And yet if 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 the, the the scientist is bring a valuable patent, then he's probably going to see more of the return when they go to sell the business than than uh, what the business guy is going to get. So it's not a true 50-50 deal like right. they thought it would be when they you know decided uh, you know over breakfast at the local diner that it was a 50-50 deal. So. Yeah, and I'm guessing that probably comes up a lot in young tech companies where everybody wants to be a friend and they want to get, oh yeah, you can have 2%, you can have 5%, you can have 8%, you can have 10%, they just throw stuff around because at the point they don't have any revenue, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that's it. Yeah, it's um, the landscape changes quickly when you go from a bunch of people with a good idea to you know all of a sudden commercializing the business, and um, you know that's where uh, you know I keep coming back to having your team in place early. But you know one of the um, one of the benefits of of getting some formality um, and some some documentation. Uh, yes, there is a cost, but a good lawyer can scale the cost so that it's not prohibitive. Mm -hmm. But the more you can formalize things sooner, uh, the less likely you're going to have a really acrimonious fight later. 
Right. And so in a way, you're spending money, you think about it, especially if you're getting in business, a family business, or you're working with friends, by uh, taking the time, spending a little bit of money to get that done right now, you're in a way, you're putting a safeguard in place for your friendship and your family relationship. Exactly. And you can always blame it on the lawyer. Ah, the lawyer, the lawyer <laughs> said we have to have this. And, you know, you can get the lawyer in between to sort of help you work through the what ifs. But it's, uh, like to say, it's sort of like putting a, a prenup in place uh, for, the, for the business. Well, and I say this to people all the time, which is uh, when people are happy, they, that's when they start things and they make agreements. It's the job of the attorney to say that, you know, the reality is that life doesn't always work out that way. And you need somebody who's not happy and in love to stand to the side and say, you know, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, yep. and you, you need that person, even though you don't want to, because you wanted to think, hey, it'll always work out. We've been best friends for 20 years and now we're going to start this company. Well, you throw money and other stuff in there and all of a sudden, you know, for 10 years they were happy. The next 10 years they're this far apart and it's a mess. Yep, and you wish you never got into it in the first place. But, you know, for every good, the good news is my firm, we've got a litigation department, and those guys <laughs> handle those fights, and we handle the, you know, putting the businesses together, helping them grow, right. and, then, and then helping them sell or grow through acquisition. So we're seeing all most of the good stuff. I don't have to deal with the litigators unless either, you know, I did something <laughs> wrong or, or the, uh, you know, the owners do or they get sued. But, um, you know, the, the good news is that for every one sad or, or painful story like the one you described, you know, there's probably 50 really, yeah. really good stories. So, um, yeah. yeah that's um, and going back to this uh, point about ownership, if, uh, I'm assuming similar to what you've mentioned earlier uh, with contracts, uh, like the con continuity issue, do people uh, make these agreements and they have none of it recorded? I mean, does that tend to happen when you find... You know, someone's going to sale and, and they've got this stuff, but they don't have the records of all of it. Oh yeah, well, in particular, when it comes to equity grants, I mean that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, represented a, a company, a, te a tech company, uh, you know, lining things up for the sale, eager buyer, uh, and um, really hadn't really used a lawyer at all. Had nobody in house keeping track track of things. And uh, started to go through there. We did to, to understand this, the business being sold to um, put together what we call a cap table, which is okay. something the buyer was asking for. It's really just a, a chart that shows who owns what in the company. Right. Not only you know straight equity, but rights to buy equity, whether it's options or warrants or or, or other um, other equity. And uh, they you know they wanted to know who who the, the, the it was going to be a stock deal, so they wanted to know mm -hmm. who they were dealing with. Right. And I started going through. Their records and they had you know offer letters to employees that say we'd love to have you come work for us for you know forty five thousand dollars we'll give you benefits uh, you, you know uh, two weeks vacation and you know point three percent of the company if this you know if right. this threshold earnings threshold is not like you know fell out of my chair because there were a whole slew of these sort of things not only yeah. offer letters they had you know what purported to be warrants which a warrant is like a contractual right to buy stock later at a price that you set today. Right. You set it today at a dollar, the stock's worth later ten dollars, uh, ten dollars a, a You're share. You're happy. Yeah, that's where the value, so they, you know, they had, you know, three line documents that say we're granting you a warrant to do, to buy stock at this price. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the normal warrant, you're not going to see a shorter warrant than say three to five pages and a lot, of, that's not all legal boilerplate. There's mm -hmm. usually real considerations and thought that has to go into that. So, 
Those right. sort of doc, those sort of promises and commitments to give away equity were littered throughout their corporate records, and it just it ended up being a, a pretty scary process getting all that straightened up on time and doing it right. And, and frankly, there were things that we couldn't really fix 100%. So yeah, now the sellers always got that overhang of, gosh, I, I, what if somebody comes out of the woodwork and says they were entitled to some of those sales proceeds? And you know, mm -hmm. you're going to maybe find yourself in court or having to, to settle for an amount of money you're not going to be happy to pay. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned a couple times tech companies. And you'd also mentioned earlier that uh, it's smart to think from the beginning about your sale, right? Versus the 62-year-old guy who's just thinking it's time to sell now. Yeah. So if let's say I'm a you 25-year-old know, tech guy, I've got a bunch of buddies, I'm putting it to, uh, together, we've got this really cool idea. What are some of the things that I should be thinking about if I want to sell my business in you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road and cash in for millions? Yeah, sure. I mean, we go through there. There, um, I've got uh, probably eight or ten clients right now that I'm working with, putting together businesses. Some of them are tech, some of them aren't. I usually start with a, a literally a five-page outline of considerations, okay. and I work through that with them. So there, there are a lot of considerations, but I'd say you know the the some of the main considerations uh, include uh, management. You know, who has what say. And uh, you know what? Are the, what is the voting mm -hmm. look like? So management is a big one. Uh, the second is how do you get money out of the company? You know when are distributions of cash made? Right. And, and are the you know the the year to year so ordinary course distributions different from the distribution waterfall we call it mm -hmm. uh, at sale? In other words, is the the, the the is the priority of cash distributions on sale different from what it is in the day-to-day -day sort of distributions in the ordinary course and uh, that that can get it to be an interesting discussion particularly absolutely if, you know if you've got uh, an investor that comes in later but you know they they think of themselves as a preferred or like a like a venture fund comes mm -hmm. in wants money into your business they're going to want some preference on their right to receive money back on a sale and, right. and they even look for some multiple of the money they put in. You know, they put in three million. They're they're going to want to get six million out before any of you founders see any money. So, um, so so that's a big one. Just dis mm -hmm. distributions. Um, and another one is uh, the, all of the thinking uh, that goes around uh, what happens when the company needs new money. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you, everybody everybody right. put in a hundred thousand, and that got them from A to B. But they want to get from B. To C or maybe D, mm -hmm. where's that money going to come from, and should there be an obligation on the participants to put to put new money in to get them to that point? And what happens if somebody that that obligation exists, but somebody breaches it, and then then what happens? So right. that that so certainly that's um that that's another one, uh, and and then a fourth big discussion is always had uh, on the subject of the ability to to transfer interest. And uh, you know, five of us get together, but one of us wants out because he wants to go do something different. Does he or she get to keep her share, her equity in the company, or do we get a right to buy it back? Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's you know an another woman in our group of five. She's uh, you know we're expecting her to work really hard, and she's an idea person, and, you know, but she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain. Do we get the right to buy her out? Correct. Now and then, what if you know I'm the majority owner and uh, I find a great buyer and I think it's the way to go, um, and and the buyer wants to buy equity in the company, not the asset. So I think, hey, I want to sell to this buyer, 
uh, and the other four people are saying, I don't think I want to sell, or mm -hmm. I don't want to sell at this price, or I want you to give me a little extra more than I would have been entitled to make me do this deal, and that's where you know we'll, we'll uh, you know that's when we'll go right back to the operating agreement if it's an LLC or the shareholders agreement if it's a corporation to see if I have what's called a drag along right, which is a contractual right to force these uh, other four to sell their stock with me to this outside third party. So just putting the what, what in mm -hmm. old fashioned terms would be the partnership, but just putting the partnership terms together early on is 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 an, is another important facet of you know putting uh, creating the value drivers that right. will allow you to get to the sale with minimal disruption you know it's really about it comes down to to to, to something I say when I'm, I'm meeting a a new potential client which is you know the the main thing I do is I'm gonna help you create and preserve wealth mm -hmm. and helping you avoid you know, litigation ugly disputes having to spend right. excessive amounts of money cleaning up your business when a buyer's knocking on the door, all these things will save you money. So there's kind of an offensive and a defensive side to everything that, that right. I do for, for my client's benefit. And and you know certainly the, the defensive is you know, protecting the value that you've created. The offensive is trying to help you increase the value of the of, of your business and um, you know, and that's where you know. I, I hate to say it, and, 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 and I don't hate to say it, but but, it's <laughs> but you're going to say it anyway. It's probably most something most most people haven't heard before. But that you can think of your your advisory, your legal and, and other advisory fees in a way as being an investment in your business. We're not just exactly if used correctly, and if if you find the right people for your team, those people should be assets to your business. You know, you think of payments, the payments you make to them. As in many respects, being investment dollars, because um, you know if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's it's a whole lot more than just simple overhead. Exactly, and I would say that uh, you know one of the things that you know I talk about in the work that I do is that our, our goal is always to be an investment, never a cost. And unfortunately, a lot of business owners only think about costs, and therefore they end up costing themselves a lot of money in the long run. Right? If they've been smart up front hired a good attorney who actually understood what we're talking about today and you'd put all the agreements in place up front you were clear on the fact that you wanted to sell at some point you in fact even better if you even knew who you'd like to sell to someday so you really designed the business for them at the end of the day every dollar you spent had a huge ROI right but a lot of people unfortunately don't get that and in fact anyone who's listened to this today and and can walk away and not think I need to talk to my M&A attorney. They're <laughs> just missing it, right? I mean, we've gone through so many things where people make mistakes because they didn't engage somebody early on who could help save a lot of money and at the end make them a lot of money. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah a lot of it is the risk avoidance, but you know, there the other side of the coin is the the value drivers. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's absolutely two the you know, two sides to that. Uh, coin and and uh, you know I think uh, you know you hear about cost and you every like a, if you're a smart business person you're you're always weighing cost against benefit and and it's true that so not every coach or not every you know not every business coach like you and not every M and A lawyer like like me is going to bring the benefit to to the to the scales to outweigh the cost so that's you know incumbent upon the the business person to select the right uh, legal and business advisors and then exactly. to use them and, 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 and you know 
to you know the, the the truth of the matter is the more that an advisor or coach gets to know you the more value they're going to be able to bring so it's important to have that long-term relationship um, you know for, for that reason exactly well this has been uh, instrumental it's been really helpful I, I really appreciate you taking the time here is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up uh, is there anything like we didn't say, cover say again is there anything we didn't cover uh, anything we didn't cover? Well, oh boy. Well, we, we've talked for about an hour. We touched on on, on a lot of things. Yeah. But it's a lot we we could have covered in greater depth. But Bruce, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, look forward to to doing it again. I think uh, you know I, I think uh, the the um, a, a lot a lot of takeaways in, in this. But uh, I I think you know what I go back to what we started with, which is you know if you're a business owner. And you're looking to grow value. Think about the value drivers that we talked about today, and uh, and understand that you know the time to start building your you know preparing your company for sale is ideally when you created the company. But if if that if you didn't start then then start today. Exactly. Now, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, the best way to get a hold of you would be what? Sure. Yeah. You you can email me at uh, a gase, which is a g h a i s at showmanrogers.com or you can just even better go to my uh, blog site my website which is uh, gettingdealsdone.net and uh, right there you can hit the contact you button so uh, Aaron thank you so much this has been great and uh, to the rest of you thank you for listening until next time to your accelerated success Bruce out bye bye thanks Bruce